So Jay, it always surprises me that Colonel Vajan isn't a bigger deal. I know, right? For a guy Val Cooper once described as, quote, Nick Fury and James Bond rolled into one, Vajan stays pretty far out of the spotlight. Oh well, I mean, Fury and Bond are both spies. Yeah, but they're showy spies. I mean, Fury had a team called the Howling Commandos, and Howling is pretty much the least spy-appropriate activity ever. Oh man, does, does Vajan howl? I like the idea of that as a measure of comic book spy cred, like, do you even howl, bro? <laughs> well, where did he first show up, anyway? It kind of feels like he's always been around. Ooh, Vajan? Um, he was in Marvel Team-Up number two. Uh, he and Hulk saved the world and murdered a dude, and then there was a super bummer ending about um, nuclear weapons. I could have sworn he was around earlier, though. Well, kind of. You would have seen him on the pages of a comic earlier. Um, he technically sort of appears in X-Men number 123. Well, then why did you say Team-Up number two is his first appearance? As a robot in Murder World. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 161 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to us getting the hang of being Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men again. And I gotta say, this is like, what, our, our fourth episode back? Not counting the FlameCon special that would have gone up this past week, it is, yeah. And I feel like we're getting, things are like tweaking a little bit better every time. So you've got, you know, you've got... Your sound improved. My, I'm using the same mic and pop filter that I was. I, I still need to get around to that. But I now have internet that works, which is very, very, very exciting. I can look at so much porn. Yes, here's to Fios and all of its pornographic possibilities. Also, both starting to notice that there are, in fact, perks to not recording in a studio, which is something I hadn't really conceived of before. Because, you know, there was so much that was nice about it. It was someone else's space. It was really sort of compartmentalized from everywhere else we worked. Is, you know, the, the really posh setup. But on the other hand, when I record here, I don't have to wear pants. Shit, I hadn't even thought of that. Okay, next episode, no pants. I am way ahead of you. I am, in fact, not wearing pants right now. Well done. Well, anyway, uh, you were just at a convention, right? I was. Oh, man, I was at FlameCon. Um, it will, it'll have been a week ago as, as this episode goes up. And in fact, we recorded um, a convention special that'll already have happened once this airs that you should come listen to. It's got Dina Grace, James Tinian IV, um, Nikki Johnson, and it was super fun. And FlameCon was absolutely amazing. I, I don't really have an adequate description for how it felt. I've never felt more comfortable or more connected at, at a convention before. Um, I've never been at a convention that felt so wholly and utterly celebratory and inclusive. It was very genuinely all ages. It was very, very genuinely just diverse and brilliant. And I had a great, great time. Um, I was on two panels. I was on one on cosplay and consent, where I talked about developing consent policies and, and working with conventions and, and conferences on that. And I was on a panel that was about romance and the X-Men, which was fantastic fun. Everything you've told me about this show and all the cosplay pictures that you've sent, like, I really want to get out here if I can. I mean, New York's pretty far away, but I would love to be there, like, as the podcast next time. No, dude, we have got to do FlameCon as the podcast next year. This is, it is where we belong. It is amazing, and you have to come. You're going to love it so much. There was a pair, there was, there was a Mr. and Miss Sinister pair on Saturday. I love, 
I love everything about that. That's awesome. And speaking sure. of cosplay, oh yeah, I cosplayed the whole show, like three different things. It was really new and neat and people actually realized I was cosplaying, unlike when we did the Havoc and Wolverine meltdown ones and people just thought you were Wolverine and I was wearing normal clothes. Well, that when, you were, when you were shooting your plasma blasts, you were very clearly Havoc. I mean, nobody else does concentric circles like Alex Summers. That is true. And actually, I, I, I did um, cosplay Havoc again, but a, a very different version of him that was actually based on a convention sketch that I did at either Emerald City or Rose City. I don't recall which. <laughs> well, anyway, um, we have, as we mentioned last time, a convention coming up uh, later this year, that being Rose City Comic Con, and we have some details for you. Yes, we are going to be back at Rose City Comic Con. It is September 8th through 10th. We will be at the convention proper on the 9th and 10th, but September 8th, that's the Friday of the show, we are throwing our annual uh, Rose City Comic Con, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, party and listener meetup. Yeah, that's going to be at a place called the Steep and Thorny Way to Heaven. If you've been to one of our Portland meetups before, it's that place. Uh, just as previous years, it's going to be free, all ages, no badge required, so just show up, have an awesome time, say hi. Yeah, um, with the usual qualifiers that also as previous years, there will be alcohol served, but IDs will be checked, etc., and um, this year, I think we're gonna we're gonna shoot for slightly more themed than usual. I think this year we are we are going to actually do the mutant revolution party. I feel so good about this. It feels really timely, and I think it goes really well with what we're gonna be doing on Saturday. So we're gonna be at the convention on Saturday and Sunday on on the floor. We're not officially tabling, but we're gonna be perching on and off with the amazing Ma Crook, who's who's offered to to let us share her space a little bit. I'm not sure if we're gonna be selling things or not. We're still kind of figuring that out. If we do, it'll probably probably just be buttons and zines but we will be doing two panels together so on saturday we have our live episode and on sunday we will be back on the stage with the hosts of one of our all-time favorite shows and in some ways our our counterparts um tighten up the defense to talk about what it means to do real deep dive continuity podcasting it's gonna be rad what we also have for you this time is some excalibur some really fun excalibur oh man yeah so I had rem I had not remembered this arc fondly, and I actually enjoyed the hell out of it this time. Uh, this is the possibly infamous, I'd, I'm not sure if anyone actually remembers it clearly enough for it to be infamous, but it is the girls' school from Heck storyline, where Kitty spends three episodes at a British boarding school. Um, it's not wildly substantial, but it's, it's a lot more solid than I remember it being, and it feels like Excalibur at the best of times, in that it's it's got elements of parody and homage it's very fun it's lighthearted, and it's exactly as long as it needs to be it doesn't it doesn't trail on and on it, it it feels concise it feels fast it feels fun speaking of it being exactly the right length that also gives us room to cover a couple of the fill-in issues between claremont's and alan davis's runs as writers so we'll get to those too first though girls school from heck now girls school from heck is claremont doing what he's done a lot in excalibur which is playing in a different genre and referencing some specific stuff in this case He's riffing really hard on classic school hijinks stories. Um, specifically here, he is what, what he's parodying and what he's, he's mostly paying homage to um, is St. Trinian's. Right, I didn't recognize it at all, but when I was doing my research for this episode, consulting my usual sources, you know, the Marvel Database, UncannyXmen.net, The Real Gentleman of Leisure, um, yeah, I found out that St. Searles, Searle is the last name of a writer who wrote the St. Trinian books that got adapted into St. Trinian movies. See, I didn't pick up on that initially, and I simply assumed that the school involved a lot of deep discussion of what it must be like to be a bat and maybe talking shit about Daniel Dennett. 
<laughs> wow. Actually, so I was I was concerned about this because when Claremont has done plays on specifically British cultural institutions before, we've heard from a lot of British listeners and we've we've talked to I usually usually Dave is the person we consult on these things because he is he is our most conveniently accessible actual British person TM. Um that, that he's missing the mark and he's missing the mark in terms of period stuff. And for this one, I wanted to talk to someone who specifically is a critic and who does a lot of work around writing about fiction and writing about the, the tropes and standards of fiction. So I, I got in touch with um, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, who writes for The Daily Dot and is fantastic. Um, I think, have we mentioned her on the show before? She's interviewed us before. Um, I'm not sure that we have, but yeah, she's rad. And, and, and I asked her because my, my frame of reference for school hijinks stories are largely North American. Um, I mean, the place I go straight to with some of the elements of this is, is Susan Coolidge's What Katie Did at School. And by far and away, the most boarding school books I've read are the McDonald Hall books, which I deeply love, but which obviously don't really connect to this. I heard they were turning those into like a TV series or a movie or something. Yes, they've done standalone straight-to-TV movies for a handful of them. They are on either Netflix or Hulu. I still need to watch them. Those books were so desperately important to me, and I love them dearly, and apparently the adaptations are pretty fun. Nice. I should tell my brother about those. He totally grew up on those books. Yeah, no, I remember that. And I gotta say, I haven't read them in a while, but assuming they remotely hold up, they are just really, really delightful. And hopefully the movies coming out mean that they're going to be back in print again, because a lot of them have fallen out. Well, anyway, St. Trinians. So what did Gavia tell you? So... What Gavia wrote um, when she mailed was, there are a couple things that feel like Americanisms, field hockey versus hockey, uh, referring to older students as seniors, but otherwise it feels quite familiar as a boarding school adventure for girls story. These stories either take place before the 1950s or they're about extremely rich people, so they don't really need to feel accurate to most people's experiences with school. Um, and the tropes she functionally fulfills are exactly the same ones that I went to from American stories, so apparently this is largely consistent internationally. But as far as the St. Trinian's books and movies, yeah, they're basically about a school full of ne'er-do-wells and, you know, murder and stuff. All the girls and the teachers are terrible in these stories. Neither of us has seen or read those, but Gav has, and what she wrote is, uh, the St. Trinian's comics are a kind of parody of these stories, uh, that being classic uh, girls' boarding school stories, where the students are all basically criminals, albeit very posh ones. Whereas the modern St. Trinian's movies are more like this comic because they do something like... Spoiler for the plot and what's going to come up, so not going to tell you that part. So there's your context. I really want to read the St. Trinian's comics now. The movies look fun, too, and we'll be referring back to them. We did a bunch of research, but um, yeah, it's it's so if, if you've seen those and you can comment on specific points of reference, we would love to hear from you. But for now, let's talk about this story. So this is written by Chris Claremont, and this is actually the last he writes of Excalibur. We're seeing Claremont and Simonson exit the books that we've been covering one by one, and this is it for him with his British mutants and, you know, transplanted American or whatever mutants. The art is done by a guy named Ron Wagner. He's done a lot of G.I. Joe, mainly. Wagner's also done a lot of short runs elsewhere in the Marvel Universe and a few other publishers, and he's good, but he took a while to grow on me. And the reason for that is that he looks, he, his, his art looks just enough like Alan Davis's to force a comparison, and no one comes out of that looking good, which is unfortunate because Wagner is fine. He is a very skilled artist, um, and his faces are very, very good, especially once, once he gets smoother with Kitty and in the later issues. He, he gets that facility with facial expressions that's such a trademark of Davis's. Totally. The cover artist, though, I absolutely love. That is Steve Lytle, and if you're clicking through the Visual Companion right now and his work looks familiar to you, that is because he did a bunch of the classic X-Men covers. 
And these Excalibur covers, especially the one to Excalibur number 32, I think have very, very similar design sensibilities and very similar feel. And man, I especially love the cover to 32. It is so goddamn fantastic. And Kitty's face and body language are just terrific. Well, that seems like a fine segue to take us directly into Excalibur number 32. Now, we talked briefly about what's been up with Excalibur creatively, but we haven't talked about the story in a very long time. It is, I, I think, since we came back from hiatus. So where did we last leave our heroes? Previously on Excalibur... Kitty and the rest of the team had been split up during the near-endless cross-time caper. Excalibur had continued to caper, but Kitty had been returned to Earth-616 for a crash course in advanced subtext with Courtney Ross, who, unbeknownst to Kitty and everyone else, is actually... Satire 9, a villainous version of herself from a parallel dimension who has killed and replaced Courtney Ross, but then everyone working on the comic forgot, so it's basically still Courtney Ross. Excalibur is now back on Earth-616 as well, but neither Excalibur nor Kitty Pride know the other is alive because, this being an X-Men comic, nobody uses a goddamn phone. Meanwhile, Courtney Ross and or Saturnine has decided to send Kitty to school um, on the basis of the fact that Kitty hasn't had a traditional education in a very long time, and also Courtney, or Satire 9, is really busy, so she is to attend the school Courtney went to, St. Cyril's School for Young Ladies. As we discussed earlier, uh, St. Cyril's is a reference to the St. Trinian's cartoons, which were originally written and drawn by Ronald Cyril. So that's where we pick up with Excalibur number 32, and I love this narration here. Yeah, this is not from the opening, but it's a great preface to the story. In her time, Kitty Prides met gods and demons, saints and madmen. She's traveled to the furthest reaches of time and space and saved the world more times than she cares to count. She's led a life beyond most people's wildest dreams, but nothing in that experience is the least preparation for these first weeks at St. Cyril's. So what does Kitty encounter here at the girls' school from heck? Well, first of all, I am kind of annoyed that there is no Hope You Survive the Experience dropped in anywhere, even on a cover in this arc, because honestly, if there's a place where there should be. But for me, so much of what works about this arc is how out of place Kitty is, and she's used to experiences that she will hopefully survive. This is, she's totally out of her depth here, and so I like the fact that we don't have many of those classic X-Men callbacks. That's a good point. So what we do have callbacks to, though, is again, classic girls' school um, hijinks books. And the first thing that Kitty encounters at St. Cyril's is the first of many boarding school stock characters. That is Miss Rutherford, the strict headmistress with a hidden heart of gold. And you have in the notes here that she's named after Margaret Rutherford, an actress who played the headmistress of a girls' school in a 1950 comedy that shared a lot of actors with the subsequent St. Trinian's movies. How deep does this shit go? Claremont knows everything about everything. Yeah, yeah, no, there are so many references in Claremont and so many briefly one-off named characters in this. And to my immense excitement and relief, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it and say, none of those die. Yeah, yeah, good on you, Claremont. I mean, it's Excalibur, and some dark shit does always happen in Excalibur arcs, but less so than the other X-Books, and I do appreciate that this is comparatively lighthearted. So, Miss Rutherford gives Kitty several pages worth of formal introduction to the school, which run parallel to what Kitty's actually thinking, which is basically a recap of the story so far in Excalibur and X-Men before that, as she considers her life previously. And on one hand, I get the point of running both. On the other hand, I feel like there's, there is a very specific technique that I wish had been used here. It's something that I first saw um, 
Kel McDonald use in, in one of her graphic novels, which is having the thought balloons obscure a large part of the word balloons when someone is, is daydreaming or thinking and so tuning out what the other person's saying, because there's nothing that Miss Rutherford says that we really strictly need to know here. Oh, yeah. So in Walter Simonson's Thor that I just got done podcasting endlessly about, there's a scene where this woman named Lorelai has bewitched Thor to fall in love with her. And so he can't stop talking about how wonderful she is. And that technique is used right there. Like the characters who actually are making decisions and making things happen, their speech bubbles just overlap his endless expounding on Lorelai's many virtues. And it's both hilarious and narratively effective. Kitty, at this point, is frustrated, but she's going along with it. She figures adjusting to this new environment, this new set of peers, isn't going to be that much harder than the upheavals she's already been through. She has, you know, been sent to Xavier's once her powers manifested, you know, left her normal school. She's had all of her friends die abruptly. There's been Excalibur. There's been the cross-time caper. Um, this kid has not had a stable life. And then she and Miss Rutherford briefly appear to make out. Okay, so I'm pretty sure Miss Rutherford is supposed to be kissing Kitty on the cheek, and I don't know, I mean, that happens in France, it's kind of a thing. Maybe it happens in England. I've never been to England. No, if she is supposed to be kissing Kitty on the cheek, this is a failure of art to accurately convey it, because it looks like they're just kissing. Ron Wagner, if you're listening to this episode, what's the deal with that panel? I mean, we like your stuff overall, but what's the deal with that panel? I mean, I assume that it's just supposed to be that, or Miss Rutherford just coming up and standing close to her, um, that it's, it's just perspective not quite working the way perspective ought. Well, regardless, Kitty heads to her bedroom to meet the second batch of stock boarding school characters. The Mean Girls, and they are rifling through her stuff and reading her diary. They have decided that, you know, this is going to be how they're going to break her in, and Miss Rutherford has actually warned her about this, that, you know, she's probably going to get ribbed a little bit, but she just needs to, needs to let it roll off her and she'll do just fine. Kitty's not so great about that. Now, the ringleader is a girl named Phoebe Huntsman, who's a total jerk. And the only other one of these mean girls who initially gets a name is, is named Veronique. And while I bet I'm going to find out she's a reference to something more specific, I sort of assumed that she was a Veronica Lodge knockoff because she looks just like her and yeah. And Veronica and Archie is kind of a mean girl sometimes, so there you go. Kitty, rather than letting things roll off or playing along, immediately earns the ire of the mean girls by punching Veronica. And then gets punched right back by Phoebe, which... Wait a minute, that's not supposed to happen. Kitty Pride's default state ever since the Mutant Massacre has been to be phased all the time, so what gives? Well, as it will turn out, Kitty Pride cannot phase within the St. Cyril's campus. And this is never explained. It seems like it's going to be a big deal, and it, it's mentioned periodically, and she leaves and she can phase again. But yeah, we never find out why. I mean, I do think it's an excellent plot device because it forces Kitty to into this uncomfortable environment where she doesn't really know how to be just a normal, if, you know, mean and British kid. But yeah, I wish there was even like a throwaway explanation. Like, I don't know, the bricks are made of antiphasium, which was very popular back in the 1920s when the school was built or something like that. Leprechauns. It's probably the leprechauns. It's always fucking leprechauns, man. Well, Phoebe later steals Kitty's stuff, adding not insult to injury so much as stealing to diary reading. And Kitty subsequently kicks Phoebe's ass in an acutely homoerotic game of field hockey. And this is, this is one of the things I checked with Gav, because I'm used to field hockey being kind of a lesbian sports trope. And apparently um, in the UK, it is roughly social in, in UK schools and especially girls schools, it's roughly socially equivalent to cheerleading. And it's, it's the thing 
that the apex popular girls are likely to be doing. Huh. Well, Kitty gets blamed for everything, because that's how these stories go, and forced by Miss Rutherford to write lines, which she then has to rewrite because her handwriting is inadequate. And that's kind of bullshit, because, you know, Kitty's penmanship is just fine. That is perfectly adequate Palmer script. It's not handwriting manual elegant, but for a 16-year-old, it's very nice. It's very legible. It's very clear. The letter forms are very consistent. I think she's doing just fine, and I, I actually I have to disagree with Miss Rutherford's call here. And I'm inclined to trust you because your handwriting is excellent. Like Patreon donors, that whatever stuff you get from us that has anything other than our signatures, Jay writes all that. Their handwriting is way better. Yeah, than mine. but most of it I scrawl in Sharpie super fast because I'm doing like 200 of them. Uh, this is my one serious visual art skill: is that I I am serious about lettering. You can actually find my my Palmer script in a number of published comics, most notably as the final word of the comic book Why the Last Man. Right? I was so psyched when the, that came out. So cool. Yeah, I do. I, I worked um, on and off uh, with a letterer uh, who needed someone to sometimes do spot cursive uh, with Clem Robbins. And I actually his cursive font is based on my handwriting, too, which is, is really cool. It sometimes creates kind of an uncanny valley when I'm reading a comic where it shows up. But yeah, looping back full circle to what we were actually talking about, because I can talk about classic penmanship forever. And if this is your thing, I'll drop some links in the as mentioned for you um, because it's cool and I'm really into it. But obviously, that's not what we're mostly here to talk about. So let's go back to Kitty Pride and her issues with her peers, not her penmanship. And I got to say, these read very honestly to me, especially narrator Claremont's explanation, which is that she hasn't really had much actual contact with her peers. And none of that has been in normal social dynamics. Back in Chicago, she was so far ahead of her age group academically, she had virtually nothing to do with them. When everyone else was gearing up for junior high, she was taking college-level courses. And later, among the X-Men and Excalibur, age didn't matter. Once she proved herself, she was one of the team, and that was that. And we actually talked about this at length, about Kitty and the question of asynchronous social development with gifted kids, I believe in Giant Size Special Number 1 when we talked about God Loves, Man Kills. But we also know from experience and from her brief, brief tenure with the New Mutants that Kitty hates, hates, hates being pigeonholed or placed in something based on age rather than ability, and she does not deal well with teasing. And I gotta say, I identify with both of those things real, real hard. I mean, the second one, not so much for me, because I learned to basically uh, not fight back and just make a lot of jokes. But I get it, like being an outcast when you're not used to the age group you're with. It was kind of different for me. Um, I actually was in second grade twice and first grade not at all. The first time I got jumped up to a second grade class when I should have been in first grade. And that didn't work out so well because I was not properly mature for that class. And there was a lot of bullying. It was bad times. The second second grade works much better. See, I was consistently dropped back from where I was realistically academically just based on my age and grade level. So in some ways, I kind of had the opposite experience. And it was just mind-blowingly frustrating. And I think I had social issues for different reasons, which is that I was with my ostensible age group peers, and I just had no, no connection to them and was just increasingly frustrated and chafing in, in my actual school. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like there are a lot of ways to deal with academically gifted kids, and it's sort of a trade-off every time, no matter what you do. I mean, pushing them forward, keeping them where they are, like, you're going to have downsides. Well, a huge amount of the issue with that is, and, and this is another tangent, but maybe it's one that's relevant here, because I feel like it is really relevant to Kitty, because she is so profoundly and far ahead of her age group, is that gifted education is largely homogenized. 
So just like standard education is geared to a specific range, gifted education is geared to a specific range, and it's actually geared to a wider range um, in terms of, of, of ability and aptitude, which means that if you're on a far end of it, you're likely to end up much more an outlier. And there's sort of an assumption that this one-size-fits-all thing is, is going to fit. At least there was, I think, in the school that we both went to. Um, very, very much that. Right, exactly. Well, in here, the uh, Mean Girls are very mean to Kitty for a lot of the reasons we just, just described. And there's this great montage page, the Mean Girls in color in front, posing and showing how mean they are. And then all these cruel things they're doing to Kitty and just panel after panel in this sort of monochrome montage in the background. It works really well, both for getting a lot of story told in a familiar fashion in a pretty efficient number of pages. Like, Jay, you mentioned that this uh, arc is the right number of issues, and I think this is part of why. But it's also just so stylish. Ron Wagner does a great job with the panel layout here. Yeah, this is paced very well, and I should say, this is this is intercut with a B-plot that we're going to get to next, and then that that will eventually merge toward the end of, of the three-issue arc, but we're just going to look at each of those storylines separately until they actually come together, so we're sticking with Kitty for the time being. So, another thing that I think is very, very important is that, for the most part, the things that the others other girls do to Kitty aren't event horizons. The fact that inevitably, and, and, and based on the shape of how girls' school hijinks stories go, eventually we know she's going to have to click with them and team up with them. And none of these things completely closes that door. And I think, I think that's really, really important. Agreed, yeah. So Kitty has been effectively iced out by the other girls. We know she's got a temper. She is very, very bad at deflecting blame, while the other students at St. Cyril's have a lot of practice and know how the administration works. So she, at this point, after a series of consequences, is now restricted to campus, and she has taken to sneaking out at night and eavesdropping. Which is how she discovers that St. Cyril's is in dire financial trouble. They need to raise a bunch of money ASAP, or the school is going to close. Surprise twist. It turns out that Phoebe, the queen of the mean girls, is also an enthusiastic eavesdropper, and Kitty catches Phoebe listening in on one of Miss Rutherford's increasingly desperate calls with a potential donor, which of course falls flat. They also bond over their lack of stable home lives, and they decide to save the with school. With cheerleading. I mean... I knew this was coming because of what the covers show of each of these issues, but I wouldn't expect this plot-wise. I mean, Kitty Pride, a cheerleader? Okay, we know that Kitty Pride is the girl who in some ways dreams of being like the popular girls, like the popular girls, like the pretty girls. She doesn't identify with that, but if you look at the way she's always related to Ilyana and then to Rachel, really has that sort of teenage hunger to maybe try being one of the cool kids. I kind of, I, I feel like she's kind of the person who would think, you know, if she just had the chance, she could do this. And I guess it makes sense that now that she has the justification of doing a genuinely good deed of, you know, saving a thing, if this is the way to do it, then hey, maybe she can fulfill that role and save the school, be a hero, it'll be great. What she does have going for her is that she is incredibly athletic. She's been a superhero for most of her teen years, so that, that does give her kind of an edge. But um, the context for this is that Kitty has discovered, she's found out in the news, that there is an American football league starting in the UK, and there is an open call for cheerleaders, for tryouts for a cheerleading squad. And so just like any other Bad News Bears-esque plot, Kitty and Phoebe decide they can put together a winning squad in two weeks. So I'm not going to go into the details of how this happened, because it would be a plot point-by-plot-point plot point thing, 
And I'd like to encourage you to actually read these issues because they're a lot of fun. And again, if this is a genre that you're familiar with, you'll find a lot of fun nods. Um, there are a lot of elaborate heists. There's a lot of cloak and dagger ridiculousness. There's teaming up with the underclassmen. There's Kitty getting confused by British boarding school slang and traditions. There's misdirection. There are fake phone calls and fake leads. And it is all pretty damn charming. It's basically an entire Harry Potter's book worth of hijinks and rivalries and friendships and less magic, but more mutant stuff, I guess. I don't think Harry Potter is the metaphor to go with here, and I will tell you why. Okay. Because one of the traditional premises of boarding school hijinks books is that there's not a villain. Okay. Now, sometimes there's the mean person or the person who needs to be put in their place or the person who initially starts out as socially unpleasant, but generally that person and defeating that person isn't the source of the climax of the book, and they're not necessarily the primary antagonist. Instead, what you have is a bunch of disparate students, usually teamed around one or two major protagonists, teaming up to accomplish something, to save the school, to help a beloved teacher, to hook up to teachers. And that's that's consistent across those books. That's something that's a, that's a McDonald Hall thing. It's a Susan Coolidge thing. It's it's pretty much all of those. And and so so this is drawing very, very directly from that in that they're not fighting a common enemy. The common enemy is the potential loss of the place that they all care about. And that is one thing I really enjoy about this arc, because we're used to seeing Excalibur, or really any superhero team, have these grand stakes, life and death, or at least, you know, banks getting robbed or not robbed, or whatever. And here the stakes are the boarding school that's been kind of shitty to Kitty. Huh, shitty to Kitty. Rhymes. Well, the boarding school that's been kind of shitty to Kitty is about to close, but she finds it in her heart to bond with the mean girl, to save it, to rescue it from destitution. And, like, what I enjoy here is that the stakes are so much lower, but it's written the same way. It's written to still be a big deal and i gotta say it's engaging as hell like i'm right there with kitty pride like hell yeah save saint searles these girls need a place to go you know what else feels really important about this with one notable exception that i can think of they're not sexualized i feel like there's we we talked a lot and i was thinking a lot about this because this feels to me like going back to pre-cross time caper excalibur tonally just some of my favorite excalibur and one of the things that we kept on going back to during that run during the claremont and davis run was the idea of Excalibur as a very softcore sex farce. And right, yeah. And you don't see any of that in here. These these are teenagers and in fact, oh, that's another important thing about the boarding school stories is that they are largely homosocial stories. They are about girls and their relationships to other girls, and if boys are there, they're very much there on the periphery. Okay, yeah, and I mean, certainly at the school itself, we see the coach who's a dude, but I think that's about it until the A-plot and the B-plot merge. Yeah, he's the only guy, and he is literally only around so that Miss Rutherford has another teacher to talk to in one scene. Do you think he's a life model decoy? Do you think Miss Rutherford got him from Arcade? Like, nobody would come to this school because the girls were such jerks and just she ended up having to buy a robot from Latveria, and that's why the school's in such dire financial straits? Because Arcade's life model decoys are, like, really expensive? I have a different theory, and my theory is based on the combination of his hair and his sweater vests, but also the nature of St. Hmm. Trinian's. And my theory is that he is, in fact, Mr. Rad from Community. I saw all of Community, and I don't remember that guy. He is from one of the holiday specials. He is the Glee Club coach. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. He kind of was like a life model yeah, decoy. Yeah, he, he is also kind of, he, he actually, he kind of has the malfunctioning robot thing going. Mr. Rad does, or at least aspects of it. I'm going to go ahead and say that that just places community within the Marvel Universe. I feel okay about that. Everything's within the Marvel Universe, didn't you know? No. Are we? Probably. Actually, 
Um, yes, that's actually canonical, though. Oh, right, we were in X-Men 92. Yes. That was yes. so cool. we are at least within the Battle World <laughs> portion of the Marvel Universe, which, while it doesn't exist anymore, you know, is canonically part of the multiverse. While the girls of St. Searles are practicing their kicks and engaging in complex subterfuge, let's check in with... Excalibur? Margaret Thatcher. What? Okay, bear with me. So the B-plot opens with what looks like yet another universe's Excalibur. And this is actually the opening of the first issue of this arc, of Excalibur number 32. So it looks like we've just been thrust into yet another alternate universe. It's the cross-time caper, we're back! Now, this Excalibur is a team of four teenagers, um, all of whom are male. There is Nightcrawler, who is Nightcrawler as usual, if a little bit younger. There's Morgan, that's Megan. There is Dark Tiger, who is Shadowcat. And there is the bafflingly named Arizona, who is Phoenix. Phoenix, Arizona. I love it. That was my favorite dumb wordplay in this issue. These dudes are led by a super rad, super badass lady, Captain Britain, and we don't get her name. Uh, they punch a bunch of Nazis. It's very cathartic. It's a good, good storyline to read right now. It is. And also, I gotta say, as Nazi punchers go, Excalibur's up there with, like, Dr. Nemesis. They punch a lot of Nazis. Sometimes they punch Nazi versions of themselves. Hmm, I don't know if that's better or worse, but I feel good about it. It is. It's just fine. I feel like if you're a Nazi, you should punch yourself. <laughs> well, there you go. Or be punched by non-Nazi counterparts from a different dimension. Look, if you are a Nazi, and there's no one else there to punch you, you need to rise to the occasion and punch yourself. I feel okay about that. And these guys, this team under Captain Britain, has sort of a Silver Age X-Men vibe in terms of the teacher and the students, but this Captain Britain is a lot more functional as a mentor than Professor Xavier has ever been. Like, she really, she talks to these kids, she makes them hot cocoa and reads them bedtime stories, which is really charming, and they've got that family feel as well. I want to be on this team so much, but this also made me think, we had a question very recently about uh, whether there are female superheroes with teen male sidekicks, and okay, I know these characters only appear in, like, this issue, but there you go, exactly that. If anybody else wants to write that type of dynamic, this is a great issue to read to get inspiration. Here's the catch, and it's a big one. This team doesn't really exist. The whole thing turns out to be a dream that Margaret Thatcher is having in a therapy session, which really compromises its appeal for me, because fucking Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's not my favorite person, but I guess I, no. I like a fictional version of her a little better if she fantasizes about awesome things. You know, now she mentions that she feels refreshed, relaxed, and her therapist tells her that he is using a technique, quote, to help people come to terms with their innermost demons and arrive at a true perception of themselves that they may achieve their full positive potential. Twist. Her therapist is totally Mesmero. Right, Mesmero. We last saw him X-Men-wise in number 111 when he convinced the X-Men to join his circus that one time. And... Here's what's interesting to me about Mesmero. This, as far as I know, this is something that only happens in this story, because he goes back to villainy later. But Mesmero has actually gone straight at this point. He has, um, he has gone good guy, and he's, he's gonna explain this later at length to another character, but it's, it's a pretty good justification. Why use my gifts to hurt folks? Especially when the putz who got hurt most often and worst of all was me. And darn if that dumb notion didn't pay off. I'm pulling in more cash legit than I ever did as a crook. And I got status to go with it. Play my cards right, could be a knighthood or a peerage. Ain't that a crock? And weirdest of all, I actually feel some sense of satisfaction doing good. Me, Mesmero. Who'd have thought it? 
That's actually vaguely heartwarming, but unfortunately, Mesmero's plans for a productive retirement are thwarted by some really, really pushy robots who show up and tell Mesmero that they will kill him if he doesn't help their mysterious masters enslave the leaders of the free world. So Mesmero, he figures the robots aren't going to kill him because then they lose their ace in the hole. He demands to meet with the leaders who run the robot show in person, and with the time he buys in between to maybe get some protection... He enslaves Excalibur. And that's how they come into this story. Is this a ridiculous coincidence that these two plot lines might intersect? Of course, but it's Excalibur. The entire book is built on ridiculous coincidences, and also a lot of alternate dimensions. Yeah, I gotta say, the logic in this is actually so much in keeping with the tone of Excalibur that we've seen before, and again, especially with the pre-Cross-Time Cape or Claremont stories that it doesn't feel that far-fetched to me. It's fun, it's ridiculous, but again, totally in keeping with the genre. So Mesmero decides he's got to get protection. He's going to get Britain's preeminent superhero team. This is easy for him. He starts by luring away Cap and Megan um, with the promise of a guest spot on one of Megan's favorite sports shows. And when they get there, the studio is empty, but there are some suspicious posters hanging on the walls. Right, like posters of the X-Men from when they were in the circus that Mesmero mesmerized them into being in. Yeah, and it's 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 a really delightful callback um, to that, that 111 cover. This is a story that's also been reprinted in an issue of classic X-Men but I gotta say, that cover that has Wolverine's front and center is just never gonna live up to the Carnival Barker Banshee one. That is so good, and fortunately, that's the one the poster references. So, Captain Britain thinks this is in real questionable taste, considering that as far as they know, the X-Men are still dead. You know, he's, he's there for Megan, and he's also there to complain about American football. Where is the attraction in watching hugely muscled bods and helmets and body armor thump into each other? Womp womp. Yeah, superhero comics. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's the same kind of lampshading, tongue-in-cheek humor that Excalibur always does so well, especially Claremont Excalibur. And Mesmero pops out and, and hypnotizes them. While Captain Britain and Megan are getting nabbed, back at the lighthouse, Kurt is being gratuitous bikini eye candy. He's so scantily clad. Okay, so he looked really good in a turtleneck at the lighthouse in the very first Excalibur issue. And here's where we learn that he looks equally good out of one. I mean, this is not surprising. We know that Kurt is the sexiest male X-Men character. He's the Nightwing of the Marvel Universe. He is not the Nightwing of the Marvel Universe. I feel very strongly about that because part of Nightwing's sexualization within the context of Batman involves a lot of situations with lack of or dubious consent on his part. Oh. And Kurt is kind of enthusiastic consent guy. He's, you know, we talked before about the difference between sexualization and objectification. And it, with pinup drawings, with saucy drawings, we talked about it, I think, in context of Rachel and Megan in swimsuits at one point um, in a page that you really liked and that, that I thought was pretty good as well. And this sequence with Kurt feels very, very similar. It's in keeping with the characterization of the character and within his range of comfort. It doesn't feel like we're seeing something we're not supposed to see which I really appreciate. Something else I really like is the way Excalibur subverts sort of the traditional tropes around bodies. This is also something that I really love about the show Leverage, that, that Kurt is definitely the sexy one. And Leverage similarly, so Leverage is, is I've, I've referenced it on the podcast before, it's one of my favorite TV shows. It's a show about a group of con artists. Whenever they have to do something honey trappy that, that requires one of them to be cool and seductive, it's always like the Wolverine dude. Oh, right. That was the guy that you wanted to play Wolverine. I remember we did some kind of casting thing and you chose him. 
Well, Logan. I think that Christian Kane would make a super, super kick-ass Logan because his character on Leverage is basically Logan. But, <laughs> and he's delightful. And he's really good at playing that specific range, too. Um, yeah, he's, he's terrific. And Leverage is terrific, and you should watch it. And there's actually, um, the, the creator of the show is a huge X-Men fan, and there are a lot of team dynamics that harken back to the best team dynamics on X-Men. Well, anyway, we don't get to look at Kurt being sexy for too long, or at least sexy and underdressed, because Mesmero goes ahead and shows up and gets him and Rachel, too. And one of the things I really enjoy is that when Mesmero does his uh, technique for getting Phoenix under his spell, she first sees Megan dressed exactly like the possessed Jean Grey was when she was entranced by Mesmero back in the aforementioned Uncanny X-Men number 111. That is a deep damn cut. Megan isn't just dressed like Jean, she's taken Jean's form effectively at this point, and Mesmero uses that to knock Rachel off balance for long enough to get into her head. And Captain Britain just punches Kurt. That's a uh, pretty straightforward. So Mesmero has now caught them all, at least all the ones except for Kitty Pride, who, as far as he knows, is not a member of Excalibur anymore. And you know how we mentioned that he would he was all reformed and had turned good and we really liked him? Yeah, um, so he's still creepy as fuck. There is he he uses the mind control to assault, um, I think it's Phoenix, um, to, to kiss her without her consent. And there's some really, really purple man flavored insistence on validation from the folks he's mind controlled that's really unsettling but on the other hand and this is this is really interesting to me and it doesn't excuse anything but he catches himself doing these things a few times and stops yeah i i go back and forth i mean i do think he's written well here like if he had just straight up reformed it would be less believable but still there's a part of me that just really wanted him to reform reformed villains are one of my favorite tropes they're just satisfying and he had such a low bar to clear he just had to not molest anyone that's really easy mesmero well mind controlling the group was iffy too i could see it as like a reflex move because his life was in danger but he really could have no actually he couldn't have just asked because it's captain britain captain britain punches before talking but there has to have been a better way to do this. But it, it's interesting to me because we see him actively trying to be a better person, trying to live up to the standards he's set in what's still a really morally iffy way and situation. And the way he negotiates it with himself, I don't, I don't have a good this is good, this is bad take on this, but it's really interesting. And it's written really interestingly. Agreed, yeah. Being creepy, what he does, for the most part, is uh, have Excalibur fight robots just kind of for the hell of it, and have Megan act as a decoy for him in, in negotiations with the, the robots who are actually coming after him, which are different from the robots he sends Excalibur after for practice. It also turns out, incidentally, that Alison Stewart, uh, Brigadier Alison Stewart, is immune to Mesmero's influence. Her brother Alistair is not, but Alison is just too goddamn stubborn. And unfortunately, since Chris Claremont is going to be leaving Excalibur very soon and Marvel soon after, I don't think that ever gets developed. What can you do? So as it turns out, Mesmero's ploy works. The robots are not going to waste him, he's too valuable, and he manages to get a meeting with the robots' masters, who, surprise, surprise, are Fenris. Fucking Fenris! They are such dicks! They're such total dicks! They are such assholes. These are these are the kids of Baron von Strucker, notable Nazi. They hunt humans for sport, but not in a cool murder grandpa's way, which is also kind of not that cool, but they're even less cool about it. <laughs> they're like if the murder grandpas were also horrible, spoiled rich kids, which just makes it worse. 
Yeah, they're just literally the fucking worst. Fenris is terrible. They have no redeeming qualities. Are they ever sympathetic? I'm gonna say no. No, they're gonna be in the upstarts pretty soon, and I think they get even worse then. Yeah, yeah, fuck those kids. So everyone throws down. Uh, Fenris is fighting Excalibur. Mesmero is controlling Excalibur. Kitty sees the Phoenix Flare from Wembley Stadium, where she and the St. Cyril's girls are actually acquitting themselves fairly well at the competition. Right, they're in the competition to see what cheerleading squad is going to actually go with the American team, and the brief training montage they had apparently worked quite well, because they're kicking some ass. Now at this point, Kitty's classmates know that she's Shadowcat, because once she was off school grounds, her default state went back to phased, and um, she just decided to tell them everything, and they got mad at her for keeping secrets, but basically thought it was super cool. So Kitty sees that Excalibur's in trouble and basically says, I'm really sorry, I've lost them too many times, I gotta go, just slips down into the ground and runs off to go help. And the rest of the team, to their awesome scrappy credit, goes to help her out. They have this great goal, they want to save the school, but damn it, Kitty's their friend, and also she fades through the ground and there's a big firebird, and that's weird, so they should check that out too. And they win. They totally beat up the bad guys with hockey sticks. And man, it is so satisfying to see villains that I love to hate get beaten up by a bunch of teenage girls using sports equipment. To be fair, these are teenage girls based on the students of St. Trinian's who are super fucking homicide. I guess there is that, but that makes it no less satisfying. Fucking Fenris. I wish I could punch Fenris. And not only, not only do Fenris and the robots get their asses kicked, but St. Cyril's is saved because some businessman that Courtney Ross and or Satire 9 knows sees the kids' routine and you know, sees them square off against supervillains and thinks that they're spunky and great and decides that he's going to rent the athletic training facilities, as I think, for, for training for the, um, the new football squad and, and team, which is going to pay the difference between what St. Cyril's needs to keep open. And Kitty goes back to Excalibur, and everyone lives happily ever after. You know, if slightly homicidally, because St. Searles. But this, so this story is so much fun. Like, the plot is completely different from anything we've seen in Excalibur or any X book, but it still has that feel. It still has that, like, joyful, goofy, intense feel. It is charming as hell. And I keep on saying that it harkens back to, to early Excalibur, but one of the ongoing impressions in Claremont's run on this book is that this is where he plays. This is where he throws stuff at the wall to see what sticks, has fun, gets way, way more, more madcap than he gets to be in any of the other X-Books that he's written. And this feels like a return to that. No, it's not terrifically momentous, although it does accomplish a very important plot thing, which is getting the band back together. But it's so, so enjoyable. It is. And speaking of getting that band back together, like, Kitty's been gone for so long. She's been gone for over a year's worth of comics. She disappeared halfway through the cross-time caper, and having Excalibur have all five members again is awesome. It feels right again. Yeah, this is a team whose dynamic is so well-balanced that when you pull a character out, you lose a lot. That's Chris Claremont on Excalibur. This was his last issue. He's not going to do another one. And the writer who is coming in to replace Claremont, who's going to write the next seven issues of Excalibur, including two that we're talking about today, is Scott Lobdell. Now, we've talked about Lobdell a little bit on the podcast before, and he's someone who comes up a lot and to whom I refer a lot in context of conversations about what to do with work that's important to you or that you recognize as good that's by someone who you don't feel comfortable supporting. Lobdell has a long-storied and largely documented history of really egregious harassment 
in, in, in professional contexts. Personally, he is not someone whose work I purchase. You know, I'll buy used issues, et cetera, but I will not buy books that add to his sales figures. And that's, I think, a very personal call. And it's not one that I'm specifically going to encourage anyone else to make or not make. But I would encourage you to do your own research, figure out where your own lines lie for stuff like this. And at the same time, I'll also say that for all of that, I think Scott Lobdell is some of some of Scott Lobdell's issues are among my very favorites of X-Men. And he's a writer whose work has meant a tremendous lot to me. This stuff is not simple. It is not easy to parse out. I think when you are consuming media, recognizing some of those contradictions and addressing them is a really important part of consuming media responsibly. Right. Now, in the podcast, we're going to be covering a lot of Scott Lobdell's work simply because he's done a ton of X-Men stuff. He was one of the core writers of a number of books in the 90s. So you'll hear a lot about Scott Lobdell, but again, decide on what level you do or don't want to engage. That's totally up to you. And we're probably not going to repeat this too much. I think we're probably going to end up doing it at the starts of major runs and then referring people back to that. But again, that's that's something that I wanted to touch back on just because it's been a fairly long time. There's been the hiatus. And because, again, it's a really good illustration of a question that we get very, very consistently in context of a large range of writers and material, some X-Men, some other stuff, and that I get personally a lot in context of my work as a critic. So, you know, it's useful as a point of discussion and an object lesson within that. And it's a question that's that's important to me because the complicated ethics of people and the art they create and how that relates to personal and public behavior is something that fascinates me and that I've written a lot about as a scholar and as a critic and as a, a policy advisor. So, Well, all of that being said, let's dive into Scott Lobdell's first issue of Excalibur in this run of fill-in issues, number 35, which I quite like. Yeah, these two issues are both really, really, really solid. They are. I mean, we mentioned how Girl School from Heck in some ways feels like a return to form with Excalibur in terms of the tone. This feels like that in terms of the plot, in terms of having darker elements and more humorous elements and over-the-top characters and very colorful fights and working in continuity a whole bunch. Like, Lobdell gets it as far as Excalibur. Very dramatic, but with a lot of character dynamic-focused stuff. And... I think that 36 is good. The next issue we're talking about is good. But this one, the dynamics that he writes are great and nail some interactions between characters we haven't seen a lot of. But I think we should start with the opening because the opening, the opening is, I think, maybe one of the darkest parts of the book, the opening narration. A little girl with torn clothing and cuts all over is curled up at the bottom of what appears to be a well. She had it all planned. Someday, when Princess Di didn't want to be Princess anymore, Amy would be the new one. At six years old, her political agenda consisted of making broccoli against the law. Oh, and everyone would have a cat. That was three days ago. Life has a way of changing one's priorities, even at six years old. God damn! That's some dark shit! Right? That's really intense, and also really adorable, and also really... Fucked up. Well, the dour mood of the issue continues as Londonites are watching TV in silence on the streets, you know, in those big banks of televisions and store windows that I think exist more in comics and movies than in real life. And Excalibur is worrying as well, because of course they've heard about this, and of course they're involved in trying to resolve the situation. Yeah, Captain Britain's beating himself up over not having already brought the kid back somehow. Kurt feels bad not only because of, of, of the missing girl, but because... The hunt for her has delayed Kitty's welcome home party. And again, Kitty's been gone for a really long time. 
they're not the only ones for whom things are changing from business as usual because Di Thomas of Scotland Yard, Scotland Yard's biggest anti-superhero activist, has relaxed his principles enough to bring in a quote-unquote specialist to, to talk to um, the man who abducted Amy, um, who, is, who claims he has no memory of what happened, who has, has memory issues and who has, has what they describe obliquely as mental illness. And Di has no patience for this, because he tends to have no patience for basically anything, especially, to be fair, when rescuing innocence is concerned, he is a good cop overall. And so he tells Rachel Summers, Phoenix, his specialist, to just, like, Phoenix her way directly into the dude's head and rip out the information they need, and she refuses. She likes to be a little more consenty about it and, you know, not turn into, like, Dark Phoenix, because everyone knows how that goes. She kills a bunch of broccoli people. And Di basically reads her the riot act for this, um, scolds her for being too high and mighty to worry about the little people, and isn't she an orphan after all? This is gonna come back to haunt us. And this is the dynamic I was talking about, because Di and Rachel are so fucking great together in this issue as sort of an odd buddy cop pair. And I do like that Di brings this up, because I think this is something that should come up in superhero comics. I mean, these characters are saving the world all the time, and that's awesome. The world certainly needs to be saved, especially in the Marvel Universe, where there's a new supernatural threat about every 10 minutes, especially if you live in New York City or London. But at the same time, there are a lot of smaller-scale social issues. I mean, this kind of reminds me of Thor number 363, when Thor's confronted by a homeless man who asks, like, what's he going to do as far as helping the little people? Or in the famous Green Lantern number 76, where a black man is asking Green Lantern about why, if he's helping the blue skins or orange skins out on other planets, what's he going to do for the black skins? What it reminds me of most specifically is a bit in the final issue of X-Men of X-Men Legacy of of Cy Spurrier's run on that book with um, the one with Forget Me Not when he runs into Mimic and I don't recall who the other hero working with Mimic is is someone who's who's been an on again off again villain and there's this thing that Mimic tells him that I've, I've actually got the panel saved because it struck me so hard because I really liked it which is um, we're not knocking the X-Men the Avengers or any of those guys they're great with cosmic crises and alien invaders. But it's hard to really help the little guy when you're always caught up in wars of gods and monsters. That is a really good line. I'd forgotten about that, but that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a really good issue, too. Rachel eventually decides, screw it, she's going to go ahead and just, just burst into the dude's head. And she sees him getting ready for a quote-unquote date, kidnapping Amy near her school, and then, then heading out to the moors near a mill. But... The Amy in the kidnapper's head isn't the real Amy. It's something else. It's an invasive presence in his mind. Right. This Amy turns around and has this green monster face and a psychic bomb belt strapped to her, and she blows up inside Rachel's mind. There's a big phoenix flare that blows out the windows. So that's no good, but at least they have some information, and at least they also know that whatever this is, it's not normal. They also have a lead to the location. It's not a perfect lead, Di knows of, of six or so places that fit the rough description that Rachel's got from what she saw, but it's enough to get started. And they drive out, and luckily enough, the first place they stop is the one, is, is the one that she then recognizes. And they take a minute to, to gear up super hardcore. Di puts on a bunch of, of army gear. Uh, Rachel unstable molecules herself back into her Excalibur gear. We get again the running joke of Di asking, How do you breathe in that thing? <laughs> nice. I, I enjoy that Rachel is clearly quite pleased at freaking Die Thomas out as much as she possibly can. 
I also, again, really appreciate the joke about how impractical her costume is because it totally is. And it's funny seeing that lampshaded, especially with a character who has the means to get around it powers wise. Right. So this issue has grappling with the whole cosmic threats versus individual people who need help thing. It's got an unexpected but wonderful pairing in Di and Rachel. It has callbacks to all these great jokes and lampshades that Excalibur has done so well with. Like, goddamn, I like this one. And then it gets serious because no sooner has Rachel geared up than she finds herself suddenly flashing acutely back to her original timeline, to the Earth 811 timeline. This is from Days of Future Past. And there she is, sees Ahab. This is the leader of the Hound. She was one of them. They were mutants who were trained to basically sniff out and destroy other mutants. And Ahab is sending her after prey. And the prey is Nightcrawler. And in this timeline, Nightcrawler is a priest, specifically a priest who's helping with the kind of mutant underground, helping spirit away refugees to escape Ahab's hounds, to escape the Sentinels. I really like this version of Nightcrawler, and I was really glad to see him in Marguerite Bennett's Secret War story, Years of Future Past. That was a nice little callback, but I believe this is the first time this version of Kurt appears. Yeah, um, and Kurt is... is standing up to Ahab, but he's he's got no chance against the hounds. And we should note that these aren't exactly the same as the memories of Rachel's that we've, we saw in Uncanny X-Men number 188, but her memories at that point were unreliable, and by now they've been pretty thoroughly scrambled. It's never really confirmed whether what she's seeing here is an actual flashback or whether it's something that her mind's just put together from the pieces of other memories. Well, whatever it is, it's damned effective, as Kurt tells his captor Ahab. Do what you must to my body, Ahab. My faith in God assures me that you and your precious hierarchy will one day fall. I'll be sure to deliver your sentiments. At the same time, I deliver your lifeless husk. Man, your Ahab, I feel so bad because your Ahab voice never fails to crack me up. I mean, he's an old sea captain. It's right there in the name. Even when he's really scary, he's still an old sea captain. You should close all of his lines with R. That's more of a pirate thing. Sea captains and pirates, they're similar, but sea captains have white beards or maybe light brown beards. Pirates can, but usually they have black beards and like missing limbs. I mean, you know, more and not robot -y. That's very specific. I'm just saying, like you say, it's good to be precise about these things. These kinds of things. <laughs> well done. Well, anyway, it's rough because Rachel is once again watching one of her best friends, one of her teammates now in the main timeline, and one of her mentors in the old timeline get killed. Like, if you want to fuck up Rachel Summers, make her hallucinate Days of Future Past. It'll work every single time. And in fact, there is someone here who wants to fuck up Rachel Summers, but not particularly personally. We've seen people go after her before for her powers. For this villain, she's just collateral damage. This one has an MO, and it's the same for everyone, and that is because Rachel is finding herself facing the one, the only, Despire. So Despair, spelled all funky, is a sort of like skeleton ghost looking dude in a ragged cape. It's, it's, it's spelled, by the way, roughly how I pronounced it, which is D-apostrophe-S-P-A-Y-R-E. I believe we last saw him years ago in both publication and podcast time. I think the last time I remember talking about him, we may have since, was the episode Look Upon My Man Thing in Despair. I still think that's probably our best episode title ever. I'm really proud of that one as well. That was a lot of fun, but, but Despair is effectively the 
physical incarnation of the concept of despair, he also eats despair, and as we find out, Di Thomas has no time for his bullshit. So, so despair shows up to loom and introduce himself as dramatically as possible, because despair also presumably eats um, drama. I despair. To which Di responds, and I'm Hope, and she's Crosby. Where's the girl? I enjoy so much that A, not only is Di Thomas wearing basically ridiculously over-the-top green military gear complete with beret and heavy artillery, but B, he just he just doesn't care. He's being confronted by a mystical skeleton spirit who just possessed Rachel Summers, and he's like, whatever, you're an ass, I'm gonna have a great retort. Yeah, Di Thomas has no time for your comic book bullshit. <laughs> and that's his thing, and it's delightful. He is the character who deeply resents being stuck in a goddamn Marvel book. Exactly. So we find out from the inevitably villain-splaining despair that he himself arranged the kidnapping of this little girl to generate more despair, but you know, the kind that's spelled right, and hopelessness in the masses, because this is the shit he feeds off of. What he didn't anticipate when he kidnapped the kid, though, was what a rare treat Rachel would prove to be. All I had to do was trigger memories of Rachel's sordid past, and I have enough cosmic angst on hand to expand my reign of terror over yet another dimension. To which Di responds by, by shooting the incorporeal despair, because, again, Di Thomas has no time for your comic book bullshit. This is enough, though, to jar Rachel back to her senses. She has been used by enough villains that she is damn well over it. Well, and she was also kind of recently in that um, Marvel Comics Presents story used by Nightmare, who's a villain that has a hell of a lot in common with Despair. I mean, they basically have the same cape. It's just that Nightmare feeds off fear and Despair feeds off Despair. Do you think they hang out? Do they play poker or just talk shop? Or at least share clothing sometimes. Do you think they have to, like, call each other when they're getting together to make sure they're not wearing the same outfit? Oh, right. Yeah, otherwise it would be super embarrassing. Like, they show up for a supervillain convention and they have the same ragged cloak. And, like, it wouldn't be so bad, but it's ragged in the same ways. Because here's the secret. It's not ripped up from actual use. It's pre-ripped. Like, those pre-ripped jeans you can buy at Walmart to make it look like they've been worn. And it costs, like, four times as much. Yeah, that's part of why they do crime. I mean, in addition to feeding off of negative emotions, they need some cash to buy their fancy pre-ripped designer stuff. And, like, one time Nightmare sewed some patches on his, but it just didn't quite look right, so he ripped them off and it went back to the basic version. And Despair's tried to add, like, buttons and, and badges, but they just, they keep falling or they catch on things, so they each, you know, end up back in the original version, and it's just really awkward, and, and sometimes they have to call and argue over who's gonna wear, like, the letter jacket. <laughs> no, I'm just imagining a letter jacket, but torn up in that same way, and over, you know, the Morpheus-looking knockoff that is Nightmare, or the Skeletor knockoff that is Despair. I am 100% certain that you can find either of those images in context of the many, many, many zombie jocks movies that exist out there in the world of B-grade cinema. That's probably true. Oh, do you remember Zombie Nightmare? Tia Carrera was in that, and Adam West, I think. Or no, it was William Shatner. No, it was Adam West. Adam West was the corrupt um, either mayor or chief of police. You know, I confuse one for the other sometimes, but regardless, that was a terrible movie and I love it. I can't believe you mix up William Shatner and Adam West. Well, only in Zombie Nightmare, not like in Star Trek or Batman. Dude. I'm sorry to both of them. Well, anyway, point being, there's a big fight. The Phoenix and Despair are beating the crap out of each other, but Despair keeps gaining more and more power. Now, again, Di Thomas, who, I will repeat for a third time, has no time for your comic book bullshit, 
leaves the two of them to cosmically slug it out and goes and finds the kid. Right, he finds her in this well that's gradually filling up with water because of course it's raining and he just dives in to save her. The thing with Di Thomas, he's a total asshole. He doesn't get along with any of the main characters of the books he's in, but he's genuinely a good dude at heart and I love him. Oh my God, do you know who he is? Di Thomas? He is the John Doggett of Excalibur. You know, he kind of is. I mean, John Doggett's less of an ass, but totally. He's got the sad backstory. He recognizes when he's out of his depth. He is competent in baseline, like good at his job, none of this supernatural shit ways, and he teams up really well with kick-ass redheads. Now I like Di Thomas even more because John Doggett is legit the best character from the X-Files. Yes, I said he it. Yeah, no, I am 100% with you on this. John Doggett is the only character in the entirety of X-Files who I am comfortable with the idea of having a firearm, let alone being able to arrest people. <laughs> right. Well, Dai is indeed a hero, and he manages to save Amy, but maybe at the cost of himself. He's damn near unconscious after the various fighting things knock a roof onto his head and smack him in the noggin. Fortunately, Amy is a child of endless reserves of despair's only weakness. Machine guns. <laughs> Wait, no, no, sorry, I mean, I mean hope. And as she encourages Di to get up because he's gonna be okay, it's gonna be fine, despair starts to, you know, despair. And that gives Rachel enough of a grip to take him down. And she says? Um, funny, isn't it? The things we learn as we get older. As kids, we don't know we're supposed to give up. And despair shrinks smaller and smaller and smaller, and then Rachel grabs him and crushes him in her hand. I mean, he's not dead, but at least he's very satisfyingly defeated. She manages to rescue Di, who has rescued Amy. Di grumps a little bit. Amy is cute, and, and Di finally softens. And it's adorable. Jay, you mentioned that you really enjoy Di and Rachel's dynamic in this story, and I agree, because like they're so similar in terms of their goals and in terms of what they're passionate about, and their personalities just clash in every conceivable way, and it works so well. Like You like them both, even though they hate each other. I love the closing dialogue in this, too. Rachel turns to Di, seeing him, you know, soften up for Amy. You big softy. If I were 20 years older, you wouldn't be dressed like that. But um, ching. <laughs> but no, I actually so I, I kind of love that because you usually see that line used in the opposite direction. Yeah, and it works. Yeah, and I, I, I it's important to me that Di is is curmudgeon to the end, that he may soften up for a little kid, but he'll still have a rejoinder for everything. And honestly, that's probably right. I feel like there are only so many years of that outfit before you realize that sweatpants exist. <laughs> oh man, Di Thomas is going to be so good when he's old. He's going to be so cranky. He is going to be the crankiest man in England. Do you remember Joel, the old network administrator at the college we went to, who is an old man at like 25? Do you remember his dog? I do. His dog was a Shih Tzu. It was not a smart Shih Tzu because Shih Tzus tend not to be smart. But what I'm thinking of specifically is the bottle of what was it like? old Kentucky general or something that he had in his bottom drawer for whenever computers were particularly ornery? Yeah, no, see, see, my Joel stories almost always loop back to being Bill stories just because Bill was, you know, you, you mentioned the thing about Shih Tzus, but Bill was also like three times the size of a normal Shih Tzu. He was a dire Shih Tzu. Yeah, he was intense. He was, he was, yeah, he was enormous. He was dumb as a box of rocks and a pretty entertaining, entertaining dog. God, have we told many 
computer lab stories on this. I feel like we kind of have endless ones. <laughs> there are so many more. But now is not the time for them. Now is the time for Excalibur number 36, X's and O's, which is by the same creative team, but a very different kind of issue. Now, the last issue was focused mostly on Phoenix. This is largely a Captain Britain issue, and it opens with a flashback to Brian Braddock's years as a research assistant at Darkmoor Research Center, um, where he was working on safe nuclear energy. Right, because everybody forgets, since he's such a normally big, punchy, not particularly bright guy, the way he's portrayed as Captain Britain, he used to be a scientist, like a pretty damn good scientist. That was his origin. And, and we see also that he had a really nice boss with whom he had really good rapport. That's going to be important. Remember that as we speed up to the present day and present. And in the present day, present time, I love Serial Experiments Lane, Excalibur shows up at Darkmoor Research Facility. They have been called um, in context of an anti-nuclear anti protest at Darkmoor, which it used to apparently just research clean nuclear energy, but at least according to the protesters has now expanded its work into weapons. And I actually, I did a bunch of research on anti-nuclear activism in the UK because, I don't know, because Excalibur and X-Books tend to be topical. And it turned out to not be particularly directly relevant, but it was really fascinating. I knew a bit already. I knew about um, the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp, which is amazing and which you should look up. But yeah, it's interesting stuff. What I enjoy about this scene is that Captain Britain assumes that everyone will be will agree with him when he says that the protesters should all disperse, this science is amazing and wonderful, what are they even thinking? And then Kitty Pride turns around and says, no, nuclear energy and nuclear weapons are really dangerous, I get where the protesters are coming from. And that works, because a good Excalibur story has many of the traits we've suggested before, but also ideally has the main characters disagreeing strongly about stuff. For a more in-depth discussion of the weapons potential of nuclear energy and the way that those two principles interact scientifically and in reality, I'd recommend going back to the Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown episode where we have an actual nuclear power reactor director come in and, and talk about that stuff with us. You can also play the Metal Gear Solid series and learn so much about it. So much. Or you could listen to an hour of podcast, which would be much, much, much quicker. I suppose that's true. So Dr. Walsh, Captain Britain's old boss who runs the lab, sees that this is not going very well as far as dispersing the protest, seeing Excalibur disagree among themselves, so he invites the men to continue their conversation indoors. They continue the debate in the mostly empty lab um, about how public opinion has turned against nuclear energy. Now, we've seen in the protest, there are a couple people who are up to something. We don't know what. And two of them look really familiar. One is a woman with white hair dressed all in white, and the other is a guy in a green and black striped t-shirt. Is that going to be relevant? I'm sure it won't. Or maybe it basically will right now, because suddenly the wall explodes and a bunch of costume types burst through. As Nightcrawler says, Why can't we go anywhere without one wall or the other exploding? So say we all, Kurt. I mean, this is X-Men. Walls are very seldom safe around you. At least it's not X-Factor who tend to knock the walls down themselves. I mean, my only real complaint is that they don't make themselves shaped holes in the wall when they go through cartoon style or Muscle March style, because that would be hilarious. I think we've referenced Muscle March two episodes in a row now. I think we may have referenced Muscle March more than anyone in the world ever has who wasn't actively involved in making the game. It's a delightful game, and everyone should play it and love it and enjoy it, and the polar bear is, is, the polar bear is important. The polar bear is great. But anyway, who are the costumed villains who have burst through this particular wall? Well, they're not exactly villains. These are all characters who come from sort of both sides of the law. Fine, fine. Who are these morally gray figures who have burst through this particular wall? Well, one of them is not gray, but in fact, Silver. Their leader is Silver Sable. We also have... 
Paladin, Sandman, you know, the Spider-Man villain, Rocket Racer, and Prowler. And Rocket Racer, as you may recall again from, from way back on the podcast or reading, is, is one of the characters who comes up in, in Dwayne McDuffie's brilliant satirical pitch as, as one of a long series of new characters Marvel has introduced who can be summed up as black guy on a skateboard. Yeah, that's a really weirdly specific trope, it's true. But I do like Rocket Racer. He's got a sweet costume. So there's a big fight because, of course, Silver Sable tries to explain. Excalibur does their best trick of not listening and fighting thanks to Captain Britain. What Silver Sable is trying to explain is that this group is here to retrieve stolen technology. There are important weapons parts that they've traced to this particular lab. Dr. Walsh denies it. Excalibur, of course, believes him because he's Captain Britain's old mentor. They fight and fight and fight and fight in various combinations. And the relevant one is Prowler and Kitty, who phase together, tumble through a wall, have a great, very civil scientific conversation that reminds me a little bit much later on of, of Kitty and Gert from Runaways talking together in an annual. Oh yeah, that was so great. But they disappear, and what I enjoy about the art here is as they phase through the wall, their conversation about scientific stuff also phases through too, so you only see like the left side of each of their speech bubbles. Yeah, speech balloons interacting with background and interacting with, with figures is something that sometimes works, but Excalibur uses cartoon physics and logic just enough to really pull it off well here. Well, the fights are all interrupted when Kitty and Prowler then come back and call a stop from the fight, saying everyone should probably take a look at what they just happens to find behind the wall that they accidentally phased through, because again, coincidences, Excalibur... There are a bunch of bodies hanging from the ceiling. Right, so that's a thing, and there's a big, you know, science machine TM as well. So Dr. Walsh immediately explains, oh, don't worry, those aren't corpses. They're just clones I made to test my big science machine on, which is actually for a kind of good thing, is to try to make people immune to radiation in case there's a nuclear war. He's not just murdering clones. He, he, re he mentions before that they're, they're non-sentient, they're lifeless clones. He's just testing the the effects on, on the, the bodies. But Dr. Walsh being what he turns out to be, he can't just leave the explanation at that, and he rips off his, well, first face and then everything to reveal that he is... Naked? Uh, well, no. He's Arnim Zola. You know, the old Captain America villain with a sort of camera box thing for a head and a big screen on his chest that actually has the human face of the guy that designed him. One of Jack Kirby's weirdest and best character designs, in my opinion. So... That's unexpected, because, like, this dude was Brian Braddock's boss from when he was a young adult. They've spent years and years working together, and it turned out he was a clone of a Captain America villain the entire time? He was not a clone of Zola. The, the further twist to this is that he's not Arnim Zola. He is one of the robot shells of Arnim Zola that has lost Zola's imprinting and is genuinely trying to be a good guy. He wanted to counter the evil that his, his original source had done, and he really is genuinely trying to find a way to make people immune to radiation poisoning because he sees the threat of nuclear war and he's worried about humanity. So we were talking about the whole reformed villain thing, and I mentioned how much I loved it, and that's one of the reasons I love this issue so much, aside from just getting to see Rocket Racer be Rocket Racer, because he's genuine about it. Like... He just wants to be a good dude. I'm glad that everything is going to work out fine and they can live happily ever after and he'll get a Doombot friend and they'll just, you know, have hijinks and play poker and stuff. He goes to a farm where he can run and play with all of the other glitchy duplicates of Arnim Zola. Oh, well, I feel good about that. That's wonderful. But I want to talk about this for a sec because this is a huge, huge retcon. This guy hasn't replaced Walsh. 
He's Walsh. He has been posing as Walsh. He's been, this has been his identity for decades. There, there is no original Dr. Walsh. This guy is just Dr. Walsh. He is the one who was Captain Britain's mentor. This kind of reminds me of that Michael Higgins villain that made it clear that Captain Britain had been replaced like the entire time by a supervillain. This actually works much better. This is a much, yeah. much better thought out and structured twist. And it's one that raises some really cool questions that, that we're going to come back to towards the end. But first, there's a more urgent matter to deal with, because thanks to the big superhero knockdown, the device, the big radiation device made of stolen weapon parts is going to blow up. And Excalibur wants to destroy the machine to save everyone around. Zola will have none of it, though, because he's trying to do important science here stuff. So he animates the clones and they all attack. That's right. He's going to save the human race if he has to kill every one of them to do it. Exactly. So Kitty Pride doesn't want this to happen, obviously. So she uses her electronics disruption phasing power to phase through part of Zola slash Walsh, which, of course, releases the green cyborg tentacle robot monster that was inside the device. Okay. Wait, what the fuck? All right. So apparently this is called the Shepherd, and this was a giant robot monster that he made just in case the clones, you know, got out of line. Okay, so this is this is from the the fusion universe where humanity fuses with the reavers and becomes sort of collectively techno organic. Oh yeah, it's the green ending exactly. Okay, okay. no, what this reminds me of is uh, in the spider the second Spider Man movie, you know the Tobey Maguire one, where Doc Ock basically has an evil switch on the back of his neck, and when it accidentally gets flipped, then he turns into evil Doctor Octopus instead of good Doctor Octopus. His arms become evil. Right, and in this case, it's his green cyborg tentacle robot monster thing that uh fights everybody. This logic makes me so happy. I love it when supervillains don't make sense, except in the sense of being supervillains and thus. I, I also am intrigued by the implication that this was the stolen weapon part, this big tentacle monster. This is definitely an age and mode of warfare that I, I feel like we have not yet reached, and I kind of hope we never do. That's probably for the best, but I just love the logic. I mean, should I lock the doors so the clones don't get out? Nah, I'm gonna steal me a big green monster. This precisely and specifically is why we, or at least the Darkmoor Research Facility... Well, things don't go well because the clones do breach the wall. They're gonna get outside and attack the various protesters, and that's no good. And realizing that things have gone way too far, not Zola, begs Captain Britain to kill him because that'll stop all the clones and the monster and save the whole area. This dude is really shitty at science. I mean, he's accomplishing amazing things, but his common sense is just not. But it's rough because Captain Britain, still reeling from the shock that his old boss and basically father figure after his own parents died, was really a Captain America villain, sort of? Now he's got to kill this guy. I mean, that's a horrible one-two punch, and he can't do it. And I mean, fair enough, Brian. Megan, on the other hand, we've already seen, is often the stronger of the two of them in terms of doing what has to be done, and she is able to replicate Sandman's powers to the point that she can get inside Zola's mechanisms and fatally disrupt him. This stops the monsters, and it gives us just enough time for a dramatic death scene where Captain Britain can ask, Please, I have to know, was there ever such a person as Dr. Walsh? Was he real? If a man's life is measured by the love and respect of others, if you believed in our dream of a better world... Then yes, lad, I was real. Oh man. Oh, this gets me. It's a reformed villain, which I love, but then it's a reformed villain that dies tragically, which I don't love, but still really works for me emotionally. Scott Lobdell is really good at, you know, feelings in his comics. Yeah, pulling those strings. 
So that's it for story coverage. We've got the three-issue arc, two done-in-ones. And man, these, these five issues feel so much tighter than the last few arcs of Excalibur that have preceded them. They totally do. And we just have a few more fill-ins after this. And then Alan Davis comes back as the writer, and I am so excited because that's probably my favorite Excalibur. Oh, fuck yes. But in the meantime, you've got questions. So, in reference to the X-Mansion bathroom-sharing dilemma that we discussed in episode 158, Rio Yanez asks on Twitter, Could the danger room be used as a functional bathroom? It could dispose of the waste, right? I mean, totally. Now, maybe not the original danger room. That was basically just a robotic gymnasium. Although I guess it probably had some kind of cleaning equipment, given how messed up stuff tended to get in there. But no, the danger room that got rebuilt with Shi'ar technology after the Muir Island saga. In addition to using hard light technology, which is rad, this new danger room could control things like gravity, heat, humidity, and texture. And I'm thinking if it could control humidity, it'd have to be able to get rid of moisture, and thus... So I'm assuming it could also handle solid waste probably as well, but personally, I wouldn't chance it for that. I mean, especially given how often the damn place gets suddenly taken over by supervillains, that could be really embarrassing. First of all, you neglected to mention what I think is the most important detail about the revised Danger Room, which is that it turns out it's sentient. And I feel like, in context of this question, we have just seen the best reason that it immediately tries to kill the X-Men when it animates. Oh, right! That's probably the secret story behind why Danger is so mad at the X-Men. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but in terms of, of cleaning up bodily waste, I will respond to your question with another question, which is, do you really think that that many teenagers and young adults with access to a functional holodeck have never jerked off or had sex in it, and that their teacher has not figured out a way to program the room to deal with that after one too many incidents? I mean, I've never thought about that before, but now I can't stop thinking about it. Huh. Well, anyway, Devin Tui asks via email, Has any comic talked about how Magneto builds Asteroid M's? Does he assemble the base parts on Earth and then find an asteroid to insert them into? Does he find a suitable asteroid and then assemble the whole base in space? If so, does he have a spaceship? Do we ever see that spaceship when he goes to and fro, or does he use magnetism to get back and forth, or does it come up and down? Or does he assemble the whole asteroid on Earth and then launch it into space, i.e. the entire asteroid is man-made? If he launches the base part of the whole, or the whole asteroid into space, does he use rockets or his magnetic powers to do so? Okay, Devin, that is a terrific, terrific question. And I want to take a minute and, get, and, and give you some background on, on an unrelated structure, but one that I think is relevant here. And that is, is, is another geosynchronous satellite um, called the Satellite of Love from the show Mystery Science Theater 3000. Now, the Satellite of Love is a big satellite. It's shaped like a dog bone, and it's made from a bunch of random shit, including an entire game of hungry, hungry hippos. The main character is there. It's capable of sustaining life, of feeding him, etc., and of maintaining, again, that geosynchronous orbit. And the main character there is, is a janitor. He is, he is not a scientist. And he is specifically on the Satellite of Love because his bosses didn't like him, so they shot him into space. I, I quote directly from the theme song here. So once he got into space, this mild-mannered janitor, Joel, um, somehow managed to use basically VCR parts, the parts of the satellite that directly control movie playback, to build several sentient robots, including one who is a dustpan, but also basically responsible for keeping the satellite operational. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm telling you all of this because all of these things raise important questions. And because I want to talk about how Mystery Science Theater 3000 
very deftly handles those questions. In fact, in the same opening theme song I cited earlier, uh, specifically with, with the line, if you're wondering how Joel, is the host, eats and breathes and other science facts, repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. <laughs> and I am telling you all of this because that's the logic on which Astrodam operates. Okay, totally valid. Yeah, so what you got to remember in context of Asteroid M is that in the Marvel Universe, magnetism is magic. It is sheer magic. It has very little to do with the actual science of magnetism. There are ways you can scientifically no-prize it. We have had a friend who was working on this with all of the various miracles of magnetism that we saw in the Silver Age. But basically, Asteroid M stays afloat entirely on Rule of Cool. Okay, all true. That said, there was that one time that Magneto pulled a circus cart full of X-Men, in fact, in one of the stories that was referenced in the issues we covered today, into space without killing any of them. So he could at least do something like that to get himself back and forth. Assuming he had a circus cart handy, of course. Well, we've seen him effectively launch spacecraft and projectiles using just his powers because of the ways he can interact with Earth's magnetic field. Um, again, magnetism is magic. He is often nigh omnipotent. So there's all of that. Now, really quickly, um, I want to talk about two more messages we've gotten from listeners. Um, one of them is a question. This is someone who, who said some very nice things about the show, mentioned that they also liked and really enjoyed um, Teen Titans Wasteland and Tighten Up the Defense, which is great, and had, had or listened to and enjoyed um, Miles, your, your summer project, The Lightning and the Storm, and asked if I had ever considered doing something like that about Daredevil, because... Daredevil is, is my other Marvel um, rabbit hole. And normally this is not the kind of question that we answer because it, it, it's, it's one of those things where it's either a spoiler or we don't want to commit to things. I will say I'm not committing to anything, but the answer to your question is roughly yes. And hopefully that's going to happen. It's a lot more likely to happen now that I am on the East Coast because the person with whom I'd be doing it is also in the, in the Northeast. And that if it did happen, it would be similar in scope to the Lightning and the Storm and that we'd be looking at a very specific run. Oh, man, that would be so, so rad. So I don't know when. I don't know exactly what's going to go on. Shout out to Jim Rugg. We should totally do that thing we talked about on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. But yeah, so, so that, is, that is one of the cool backburner projects. The other message we got is also via Tumblr. And this is a reminder to Australian listeners. Um, someone asked us to, to call it to Australian listeners and remind them to make sure that they are registered to vote because Australia, you've got a marriage equality vote coming up. And that is super, super, super important. And apparently you have to make sure through a separate mechanism that you're enrolled for national voting, not just state and local. So if you are in Australia, you're listening to the show. Um, if that vote hasn't happened yet, do that. That's really, really important. Um, I'm going to answer this question on the Tumblr, too, just so that that's a visual reminder somewhere else. Voting is great. Civil engagement is great. Be your own mutant revolution. Hells yeah. While we're reminding people of things and telling people to do things, come see us at Rose City Comic Con. Um... We don't have the details yet, but come see us at New York Comic Con, too. Uh, we talked about Rose City at the beginning of the show. Meanwhile, speaking of amazing civic engagement, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. And some of the tiers of support we offer come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional characters and entities. And I believe today I am passing the mic to the, the tatter-cloaked despair. In a time of such hopelessness and pain, the world faces despair. 
My scary pale face and ragged cloak shall... N no, that, that's a nightmare. He's totally a different guy. Uh, the point is, the human angst and ennui that suffuse the Earth shall empower me to conquer your entire pathetic dimension. Unless... What? Ilana Brooklyn, how can such hope burn within your soul in such trying times? Jason Ledoux, how can you even see light in this darkness? No, I shall not be defeated by two feeble humans like Ilana and Jason. I'm invincible. Look how awesome my cape is. And I will turn it over to everybody's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. You like to think you're pretty scrappy, huh, David Morris? After all, how many people your age have gotten superpowers, had to restart their lives over and over, and fought giant bugs in space? If only your lifetime of pluck and ninja training had prepared you for the most difficult challenge of your life. Luke Mead's Lunch Table Click. Hope you survived the experience. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and it's produced by Kurt Lloyd, host of the Fun and Funny comic book cover story, which you can find on YouTube. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more, and this week in particular, our FlameCon After Show special. This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be taking a break from the team books as Wolverine steps back for some moody alone time. In the pages of Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X. Weapon X.